We're going to begin this uh, morning with uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus' parables. In verse 44, it tells us that Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Matthew 13 accounts several parables of Jesus and the time in Jesus' ministry when uh, he was focused on convincing the unconvinced that there were those who were his adamant enemies who would stand against him all his life who could never be convinced that he was the Messiah. There were his disciples who had already voiced that they believed that he was truly the one who was to come and who stood beside him. And then there's this great multitude that he had attracted that saw his miracles uh, but would, had not yet made the commitment to believe in him or to follow him. And many of the, some of the parables of Matthew chapter 13 uh, reflect upon this aspect of faith in God and the process by which a person comes to make that decision. Seeds planted in the field, and if it, rises, if it lands on the right soil, it brings both a crop. If it doesn't land in the right place, it doesn't bring, bring a crop. And so Jesus tells a story here, it tells uh, two parables here in two sentences, that have to do with, again, this process of reception. The kingdom of heaven is like... Matthew often employed the term the kingdom of heaven, not to speak about heaven. Sometimes we read that passage and that's immediately where our mind goes. He's talking about the heaven that is to come. But Matthew often employed the term kingdom of heaven not to speak about heaven, the place, but to signify the one who was in heaven. That he used the term heaven not to offend those who felt that it was uh, irreverent to speak the name of God. He simply referred to heaven to speak about God and that the kingdom of heaven were all those who fell under, who followed the sovereign rule of God. So in, Jesus, in Matthew's reiteration of the parables of Jesus, the term kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. It is his people. And that's what Jesus is describing here. These two parables focus on the process involved as an individual would come to the kingdom of God or come to the church or come to a relationship with God, become a Christian. Those who understand the value of relationship with God have a certain mind about it. They engage in the process of being converted with a desire to give everything that they have to it. And that's what Jesus is, is, is describing here. But those who know what it means to come into a relationship with Jesus would give up everything they have to obtain it. Like a fellow who found a treasure in a field and realized this is what I've been looking for all my life. And so he goes home and empties out his bank account and buys that field so that he can have that treasure. Or a person that's been searching for, you see, a pearl of a certain character and quality all his life. He's seen a lot of pearls, but then he comes across this pearl and this is the one I've wanted all my life and goes and sells everything that he has so that he can obtain that single pearl. Now, Jesus is telling us then that a person who understands what it is to become a Christian, if he sees the value that God places before him, he'll give up everything to obtain it. The implied, I think, negative of that, the other side of that, is that if a person were to come across Jesus Christ and have the opportunity to have a relationship with him, but not do it because he wanted to hold on to something that he was unwilling to give up, that he misses it. That he misses the treasure, the great wealth of the kingdom of God. 
So there's this unavoidable choice that must be made at the time in which you see the treasure or the pearl is placed before him. Must be able to make the right evaluation of what's before him and thereby make the right choice. And what he's going to obtain, what he's going to get out of it, will involve a sacrifice. Not just of a little, but a sacrifice of everything that he has. And that's what Jesus is presenting here, I believe, in these parables. One way of looking at this is to say that what Jesus is teaching us is that God's people, his kingdom, are fully invested. You know what it means to be fully invested? Got everything in this. You know, if it goes, I go. If it doesn't go, then I don't go. So these two parables are short and they are simple and they are similar and they are powerful. The main character finds something of value and gives everything to own it. And through great sacrificial transaction, there is joy and happiness. The man who finds the treasure, the man who finds the pearl, when he finds it, he's happy about it. In fact, he can't contain himself. He realizes that this is it. There are two, there are obvious similarities to the story, but I think there's a sense in which, and maybe intended so, there are distinctions as well. A noticeable difference between these two main characters is that one finds the treasure in an incidental way. It doesn't indicate that he's looking for a treasure, and why would he be looking for a treasure in a field where you see there is no X marks the spot? He just in a field and he comes across it, and there it is. The other fella is searching for what he's searching for. He finds the pearl because he's looking for it. So they each come, you see, to this thing that they most desire, two different pathways. The Samaritan woman of John chapter 4, she came to the well to draw water. She didn't realize she was going to meet the Savior of the world, that she was going to meet the Messiah the one who could tell her all things that ever she'd done, but there it happened on that day. She met Jesus. And realizing who she'd met, she went and told everybody, come and see, this is the one. If she found the treasure, even though she wasn't looking for it. And then the Ethiopian of Acts chapter 8, He'd been to Jerusalem to worship. He was interested in spiritual things. He was reading a scripture, trying to figure out, is this the one? He was searching for that one. And Philip came along and said, here he is. This Jesus. I preached Jesus to him. And he found the treasure. And he became a Christian and went on his way rejoicing. He was searching. And he found the kingdom of God. Some people come across it incidentally. Some people are really looking for it. But Jesus' point is not so much to distinguish between that, but rather to recognize that in both of those cases, there is a value, an immeasurable value, in the mind of the one who finds it, that motivates him, directs him. It's everything to him. And therefore, it becomes the reason why he does what he does. Knowing Jesus is priceless. Having a relationship with Jesus is everything. Paul would say it this way. Paul said it this way. To live is Christ. And that's what we've been talking about all year, isn't it? To live is Christ. Our theme from the book of Philippians. And this, this particular parable takes us back there. That to live is Christ. 
The Apostle Paul was certainly a fully invested disciple of Jesus, wasn't he? He followed Jesus, and in the following, they engaged in not only because it was divinely commissioned for him to do this, but because he realized the true value of who Jesus was, he was willing to give up everything that he had to follow Christ. Now, that's interesting because no doubt Paul the Apostle, when he was Saul of Tarsus, thought he'd already found the treasure. If he was looking for the kingdom, he thought he'd found it in Judaism. But on the road to Damascus, a, tra- a journey that he'd taken for the very purpose of persecuting Christians, he learns the truth about Christ. He learns not only about the person of Jesus, but he understands now why those individuals whom he'd be putting to death were willing to go to their death. Why were these folks not abandoned their faith when he was going to kill them for it? Now he understood. Because Jesus was not dead. Jesus was alive. And so Paul became a disciple to carry the cross of Jesus without hesitation at great cost. In Acts chapter 26, he described it this way to King Agrippa. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, and to this day I stand, witnessing both to the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses should, said should, would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, I started this journey, and from the very beginning I was persecuted. There were those who opposed me. There was a price to pay. Late in his life, Paul wrote to the Philippians, a passage we've been discussing. When he wrote to the Christians there, he further, I think, amplified this aspect of the commitment that he'd made, not only at that time on the road to Damascus, but the commitment he'd been making all along. And so the passage we've been studying in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In our study two weeks ago, we considered Paul's resume of human achievements that he lists in verses 5 and 6, where he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he was an individual who learned the law and understood, understood the law. And in terms of his keeping the law, he was a Pharisee of the strictest sect, and a person who was blameless in the sight of others. If anyone had reason to have confidence in who he'd become and what he'd gained in terms of his religion, it was Paul. He says, I have more to brag about than you folks do when it comes to being a Jew of the Jews. But he goes on to tell them, as we study, I threw them all away. I happily and joyfully counted them as rubbish and put them in the garbage can and walked away from them. Why? He says, so that he might gain Christ. He found the treasure. He sold everything that he had that he might have that treasure that he found. The pearl he'd been looking for all his life. Well, Paul was willing to suffer the loss of all these things, these valuable assets that we talked about couple of weeks ago in order to gain something. What was gained? What did Paul expect to get when he gave it all up? When he turned away from his Jewish heritage and became what God called him to be? What did he do that for, so to speak? 
Paul traded it all for the ability, you see, to know Jesus. Now, when we say, what did Paul gain? Or why did he do it? That's reflective of us as well. Why did you do it? Why did you become a Christian? Why would you give up? Some people have given up their family. They've given up their religious heritage. And they've changed their whole life and things that they've devoted their life to. Now, they turned away from those things to have Christ. What did you do that for? What did you anticipate to gain? What do we expect Paul to say here if we ask him that question? Well, you know, peace of mind? That I came to Jesus to have, you see, some peace in my life. I came to Jesus to have some self-respect. I came to Jesus so that when I die, I can go to heaven. You ever use that one? Came to Jesus so that I could go to heaven. You almost expect Paul to say that here, wouldn't you? That I gave all these things up that I might gain heaven. And yet, that's not what Paul says here. Now, he anticipates heaven. He's going to talk about the resurrection. But what he says here is that he traded it all for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count it all loss so that I might know Jesus. The term excellence means, in the original language, surpassing worth or greatness. And so again, that reflects back on what we looked at in Matthew chapter 13. Paul saw value in knowing Jesus. It was worth to it. The knowledge of Christ Jesus, I believe that Paul so treasures here, is not just intellectual knowledge. It's not just knowing who Jesus is. There's a sense in which Saul of Tarsus knew who Jesus was and certainly knew who Jesus claimed to be. But he did not know Jesus as his Lord. And that's what he said. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus was something to him now that had never been to him before. And there was worth in knowing that Jesus was the one who was his Lord. He did not know Jesus as the one to whom he would submit, to whom he would follow. I look at this and I, it's interesting to connect this with Acts chapter 9 when Saul of Tarsus became a Christian. And the central question on, G, uh, on Saul of Tarsus' mind when the light shone and he fell to the ground was, who is this? He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, am I Jesus whom you are persecuting? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Who is this speaking to me? This Jesus is dead. He's in the grave. He didn't resurrect from the dead and yet he's speaking to me. And so Paul's central question, you see, that he asked at the very beginning of this process of conversion is, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus answered, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Hard for you to accept this, isn't it? The aspect of kicking against the goads was not an intellectual struggle. It wasn't an aspect of knowing something intellectually or in the mind. Rather, it was a struggle of the will. It's hard for you to submit to me. It's hard for you to obey me, to put yourself under me, to recognize who I am truly. Saul had to relinquish his confidence in his fleshly achievements. He had to submit to the will and the authority of Jesus in order to become Paul the Apostle, in order to become Christ. So I'm convinced that what Paul describes here in the aspect of the excellence of knowing Jesus is the aspect that he continued to know Jesus more and more from that day onward to know Jesus better and better through submitting to his will. The term knowledge here, the original word that's translated as knowledge, the word gnosis, denotes experiential knowledge. 
It denotes in many cases that which you come to know through experience, through living it out, and not just the aspect of something that you read in a book or didactic knowledge. Do you know Jesus? Or do you know about Him? There are a lot of folks that know about Him. And so they may attend service at Christmas or Easter or they may have poems that they put on the refrigerator and they know about Jesus and they may talk about Jesus every now and then, but they do not experientially know in an excellent, worthy way Jesus as their Lord. (coughs) What does Paul mention here as the valuable assets of knowing Christ? He says that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And again, the language, the original language is helpful here. He uses two verb tenses here to indicate both his past ambition and his future hope. He gave up these things initially that he might gain Christ, or some translations say win Christ. And would seem to point to the point in which he was originally converted. When he became to know who Jesus was and he became a disciple, he gained Christ. Christ then went from that which on one side of the ledger to the other side of the ledger. It was all that was on that positive side of the ledger was Christ himself. But then he says, I also desire to be found in him. And that's future tense. The idea that he would gain Christ and then later on when he dies and the Lord returns, he would be found or discovered to be in Christ. And that again goes back to this aspect of his confidence. How could Paul have confidence that he would be found in Christ? How could he have find worth in the aspect that on down the road, when the Lord comes and there's a judgment, I'm going to be found in Christ? Because he's given up everything for that. Because he is going to talk about had gained a righteousness that he could not gain by himself. Paul uses the expression in Christ or in him or in Jesus throughout his writings. I think someone is suggested that in Paul's writings that phraseology is used over 150 times. So if you go to go ask the Apostle Paul, how do you describe how do you describe being a Christian? This is the way Paul would describe it. You are in Christ. You are in him. Now that's not mystical. It's Paul's way of describing the position of the Christian in a saved condition. That that's the only place you can be and be saved. You can't be saved in your own achievements. You can't be saved in your religion. You can't be saved in your church. You can't be saved in your own mind or your own thoughts. You can't be saved even in your own good conscience. The only place you could be saved is in Christ. It's the activity of Jesus that makes that possible. All spiritual blessings, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, are in Christ. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Bible clearly indicates that the way one gets into Christ is he's baptized into Christ. As it reflects in his obedience, you see the worth of the gospel in his own life. But what Paul also says that is that he would have a righteousness not of his own, or not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now Paul's being descriptive here, there's only one way to be found in Christ, and that is have a righteousness from God. I can't get into Christ with my own righteousness. And by that, we mean that I can't earn my way into heaven. I can't do enough good things to put myself in the position of being saved before God, to ingratiate myself to God because I've done more good things than I have bad. And even when I put it in the perspective of law-keeping, I recognize that in order to be perfect before God and righteous before God, I have to keep all of the law. And I've already messed that up. I've already sinned. So no man can be saved or justified by the law, but rather through faith. 
which means precisely that I must put my confidence in someone else, in what someone else has done, not myself. Well, who is that other someone else? It's faith in Jesus Christ. Paul already said that in respect to the law that God had given, he was considered by some to be blameless, or by many to be blameless. That his righteousness stood in keeping the law of God, that others would have said, yeah, Paul, you're okay. You're good. Paul realized that it was not enough. The righteousness righteousness in that respect was not enough to stand in the judgment of God. He didn't want a righteousness of his own. He wanted a righteousness that came through the efforts of God. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, But the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul's simply saying there is that God has chosen how to make the, the, the manner in which he will make God man right before him. And God's righteousness is not something mystical, it's the plan of salvation, the way in which God has designed for men to be right before him, and it has nothing to do with me keeping the law perfectly or having a checklist. It has everything to do with putting my confidence in what Jesus did at the cross. And my faith is in Him. Now that doesn't rule out or in any way diminish the importance of obedience. In fact, it actually facilitates the absolute essentiality of obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ because I can't claim to have faith in what God has done unless I'm willing to do everything He tells me to do and everything He commands me. And the way in which I demonstrate that I have confidence in Jesus' resurrection is I die with Him and I'm buried with Him and I'm resurrected. But he says here that I might know him and then he says that I might know the power of his resurrection. This is what I gained in Christ. I come to know him and I come to know the power of his resurrection. And we'll notice right off that Paul mentions resurrection twice in these verses. First he desires to know, again that word indicates to experience, the power of Jesus' resurrection. Paul knew that firsthand, didn't he? Jesus spoke to him, appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He had experiential evidence that Jesus was not dead, but at the right hand of God. So certainly the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus was a powerful event, not only in Paul's life, but in everyone who became Christian. It was the central focus of the first gospel sermon by Peter in the day of Pentecost. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's both Lord and Christ. He is not dead. He is not in a tomb somewhere. He has resurrected. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection from the dead. The central sign, the sign of Jonah, is that Jesus would not stay in the grave. So Paul knew the power of the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus in terms of the historical event. But he also, I think, understood the power of Jesus' resurrection and the power of spiritual renewal and the power of the forgiveness of sins. Paul describes it this way. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. He says to the Colossians, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried within him baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive to get you are made alive together with him having forgiven you all your trespasses. 
He knew the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the conversion of the sinner and the forgiveness of sins. In Romans chapter 6 and passages we're familiar with, do you not know as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. Do you not know that if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, you are resurrected? That the power of the resurrection of Jesus is translated into your life when you are come up out of the water and you're forgiven of sins and you walk in newness of life. So he says, knowing this, that our old man were crucified with him, the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin because we've been resurrected. Paul saw that over and over and over again. From city to city to city, he preached the gospel and there he saw the power of the resurrection of Jesus in the conversion of the sinner. Later on, Peter wrote, there's an antitype which now saves us after describing the flood of Noah. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God and angels and toys and power have been made subject to him. So where Peter would say baptism saves us, he adds to that or certainly amplifies that by saying that it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that that's possible. A person isn't saved by the water. There's no magic in the event. It isn't saved because it's a church ordinance. It's because your parents did it, your grandparents did it. The power that's invested in the aspect of a person submitting to baptism is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's made possible because Jesus came out of the grave. Because there's power in God being able to give life to that which is dead. And so here I am, a sinner, dead in his sins. And God gives me life again. He causes me to be resurrected. We might notice then that all of these passages that link the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the forgiveness of sins also mention baptism as the burial that precedes a spiritual resurrection. It absolutely astounds me that people can miss that so often, so prevalently in religion today, who want to misplace baptism and put it as something that happens after a person has been brought back to life, as though somehow a person is buried after they're resurrected in the analogy of the apostles. But what we surely cannot miss is not just the order in which baptism finds itself in Scripture in terms of salvation, but the power and the source of that power as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But he says, I also know the fellowship of his sufferings. I give it all up that I might suffer with him. The word fellowship denotes joint participation. Now, we recognize you and I don't share in, nor did Paul share in, the sacrificial suffering of Jesus that was for the propitiation of sins. Nothing that I do or suffer in my own life takes away any of my sins or certainly could not take away the sins of anybody else. My suffering is not vicarious in the way it was with Jesus. He died that death all by himself. He paid that price all by himself. So what Paul's discussing here is suffering for the sake of righteousness, suffering for the cause of Christ, suffering alongside Christ for the fact that I'm telling the truth and I'm teaching the truth and I'm living the truth. And so we share in his sufferings. And the aspect of that that Paul amplifies is that if I'm willing to share in his sufferings, then I can anticipate sharing in his glory. That Jesus was willing to suffer, fully confident that he would be glorified in the end, that he put his trust in the Father, that his suffering would have a fruit to it, would have a reward. And so Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. 
But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Peter's encouraging the Christians. Don't think it's strange because you suffer. Jesus suffered before you. And when you suffer, you're simply sharing in those sufferings that you might share in His glory. Paul says, now if we are children, then we are heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share with his, in His sufferings in order that we also share in His glory. Now how far do we go then? Paul says, even that I might be conformed to His death. It's one thing to see the sufferings of Jesus and say, yeah, okay, I'll take a little bit of that. It's not so, I, can, I can do that. Particularly if you're going to serve Christ and it seems to be an inevitable consequence of serving Christ. But Paul says, I'll die with him. Not only will I die with him, I'll die like him. And you think about the impact of that statement to those who understood how Jesus died in the first century. But even to be conformed to his death, to die just like he did, I will give it all up. I thought about that when we sang those songs a few minutes ago. Perfect connection to my lesson, faith of our fathers living still. How sweet will it be if their children's faith would be if they could die, if we could die like they did. You think about those who've gone on before, those who've given their life and the lives of their families for the cause of Christ, those who faced the Roman sword, who faced the arena, who were burned to death at the stake because they gave the declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. Here we sit somehow, and inconvenience of a coming to an assembly or praying once in a while and trying to claim solidarity with that kind of life. I struggle with that a little bit. Not that I'm not ever grateful that God given us a position to serve God, to serve Him without much persecution. That the freedoms that we enjoy are a great blessing. But the strength of faith that it took to stand for Christ in years before is heights above what I consider to be my level of faith in the society in which I live. To be conformed to his death. Why? If by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Once again, Paul mentions resurrection. But now it's his resurrection. I want to know the power of Jesus' resurrection so that I may attain to my own resurrection. The apostles are aware that even the unrighteous will experience a resurrection. John chapter 5, Jesus says, The hour is coming when all that are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good of the resurrection of life and those who have done evil of the resurrection of condemnation. So there's a resurrection for all of us, whether we serve God or not. When Paul says, I want to do this so that I might attain, by any means he might attain to the resurrection of the dead, he's speaking of that resurrection of life. The coming back to life where the full reward of serving God is realized. A resurrection to eternal life. Paul told the Thessalonians that Christ will ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. What do you want out of being a Christian? If God calls you to give something up, if you must, now that you've found Christ, Sell what you have to gain the field. Empty your bank account to have the pearl of great price. What's on the other end of that? Paul looked at his life and said, all of these things, I'm moving over here. They're no longer assets to me. I'm throwing them in the trash so that I may gain what I really see as valuable. 
The goal of the Christian, what really matters, is to gain Christ. Is to be found in Him. You have to have a righteousness that comes not from my own efforts, but reflecting fully upon the cross and the righteousness that comes from God. The true value of being a Christian is to suffer with Him. Even to die as He died. To the end. To attain to the resurrection. To eternal life. To look ahead with anticipation that even the pale of death and the gloom of the funeral home cannot diminish. You know that's true, don't you? If you're a Christian. Maybe you've been to the funeral of those who were not Christians. Maybe some that you loved very dearly who had never come to Christ, who'd never found the pearl, or if they had never been willing to give up what they needed to give up to attain it. And so now they face death. And they experience death without hope. And then in contrast to that, funeral of the person whom you know and love, who found that treasure, gave up what they needed to give up, obtained it, and lived it out. And as the Apostle Paul, they counted all loss that they might obtain to the resurrection of the dead. And now that day has come. Now that day has come. Their death was not a grim end. It was a glorious reward. And that's a difference, isn't it? If you're willing to make that transaction. Do you know Jesus? Who's standing in the way? Or what's standing in the way? What obstacle is it that will keep you from gaining the treasure? What profit is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Will you come to Jesus and be part of His kingdom? Will you submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? Will you at this moment, because you're willing to submit the commandments of God, to repent of your sins and confess Jesus Christ and be buried with Him with a hope of resurrection, rise and walk in the newness of life, Will you at this moment gain Christ and give it up?